Shalom, shalom, holy friends. We are excited to be here with you all and to be here in Denver for the VBM Denver launch, um, where we are helping to uh, reach more at Valley Beit Midrash as part of our expansion. And look forward to learning with you today about Arvut, about Arvut. It's a little bit of a continuation uh, with our theme last week in regards to kindness and in regards to specific kinds of kindness based on Kol Yisrael Arabim Zelazeh, taking responsibility for our community. So thank you for joining. And as always, very excited to learn with you. And here we go. What is the core essence of Judaism? Is it primarily a, a personal religious conviction or a communal one? Is it a series of epistemological contentions or an emotional journey? To be sure, these rhetorical questions are never ending and at the heart of our great tradition. Learning how to reconcile these different ideals into a common reality is enough to warrant a call to action towards the grand notion of Arvut, that we are responsible for one another. Jews are vital in the spiritual enterprise of learning the values imbued by Torah. The sages, that a wise, the sages taught that a wise individual is someone who can learn from all. Pirkei Avot 4.1. And in their consummate wisdom of the enigmatic the Kabbalists taught that every Jew represents a single letter of the Torah. And just as if one letter of the Torah scroll is missing, the entire Torah is rendered invalid. So too, every Jew is needed and informs the entire entity of Am Yisrael. Thus, although we may be individuated with distinct personalities, 
wants and desires, at some point we all converge as a great nation. We are each crucial to the spiritual development of our fellow and community, though we may not always know it. Reformed Jews, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews, Hasidic Jews, renewal, reconstructionist, reconstructionist secular, Israeli, um, Sephardic and Ashkenazi, um, Ethiopian and Yemenite. It goes on and on, academic, cultural. It is not for naught that the sages noted that the one occasion in the Torah in which B'nai Israel achieved complete arvut was at Sinai, Har Sinai, just prior to the revelation and pronouncement of the Aserah Tadibro, the Ten Commandments. The Torah tells us, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, the Israelites camped there. It is instructive to note that the word Vayichan is written in the singular form. In every other mention in the Torah, it is written in the plural form. Rashi, quoting the Midrash on this oddity, comments, you ever heard that phrase? Good one to remember. As one person with one heart, right? That at, at Sinai, when we hear revelation, we are not multi multiple people, but we are like one person with one heart. All other encampments, Rashi says, were within fighting and disagreement. It's as if Rashi is informing us that Arvut, this responsibility, is a prerequisite to the receiving of Torah. In our pursuit of Arvut, we are not limited to our ideals alone. To sustain spiritual growth, so vital to the health of the soul, if not the body, people have to journey beyond familial comforts. Responsibility towards humanity means taking up the critical mantle of creating communities where there are gaps, filling the vacuum with respect for the inherent dignity of all people regardless of status or station. Pluralistic understanding is the key, though disagreements as to its application will certainly arise. Being aware of this means that building communities is not dependent on picayune differences of ideology or ritual, let's say, but on mutual regard for deeply held convictions. For even if we do not agree with one another, the shared destiny of the Jewish people rests on the sacred integrity and wisdom that has been cultivated for countless generations. Modernity, indeed post-modernity, raise serious questions about our role in caring for one another. The increasingly prominent role of digital anonymity has created a sense of distance in human interactions, nearly to the point of abstraction. But people aren't made of bits of code. The blood and sinew, which was created from upon high, binds our collective fates and it can inspire us to reflect on the monumental role we have to play in storing succeeding epochs of humanity towards the path that is more just. For without this in mind, we doom ourselves to irrelevancy and the void of indifference. This, friends, is the antithesis of Arvut, the antithesis of leading a life guided by Torah values. We have been chosen for a singular and crucial mission to bring holiness and justice to the world. This task, though, immense, is part and parcel of the divine contract which was struck by our ancestors eons ago with the divine. To fulfill the terms, we must be absolutely unequivocal about our commitment to respect, tolerance, the 
perspicacity, we need to ensure that all people, not only Jews, can thrive in the world. It is our eternal task. It is our constant spiritual test. And perhaps it is our most important link to all of creation. The primary value that should guide every agency in our individual communities and at societies at large is our root, responsibility, right? This might seem obvious, but it's not. Many individuals, families, communities, societies guide themselves by happiness, by hedonism, by self-fulfillment, right? By a whole bunch of, of ideas. Sorry for all of our tech difficulties here. Um, but so it's not obvious that we are guided primarily by responsibility. We are diverse and we will thus have different views. Nonetheless, we must take care of one another. That is the Jewish message to the world. We take care of one another. Looking at the Purim story, Haman, ooh, Haman approached Achashverosh and told him that the Jewish people were mefuzar umefurad bein ha'amin, scattered and separated among the peoples. Haman was, de boo, was demonstrating the vulnerability of the Jewish people because there was no there was no unity, collective responsibility or shared purpose. Each year at Purim, while we celebrate our diversity, we must also recommit to our mission of preserving and building our cherished eternal people. This is why Esther and Mordechai implemented the mitzvot of Mishloach Manot and Matanot Le'evionim, giving food portions to our neighbors and charity to the poor as part of the celebration of the holiday of Purim. Indeed, two of the four mitzvot of Purim, a full 50% demonstrate our sense of arvit, right? This is also why Esther insisted that if she does indeed go to the king without being summoned, thereby risking her life, that everyone else fasts for her, Ta'anit Esther. She understood that the key to her success and her mission was our acting like one person with one heart. As fragmentation and enmity perpetuate, this sacred task is more crucial than ever before. I love how their beards look like grapes, like a grapevine. <laughs> Why did the rabbis have so much faith in individuals? Why did they believe that we are capable of such heroism? Are we taught to embrace collective responsibility because we want to empower others or because we are responsible for their wrongs and have the power to inspire them to do right? Going deeper, is Judaism primarily an individualistic religion accountable primarily to oneself or a collectivist one where the benefits for all are paramount? For us to wrestle with these questions, we have to consider carefully the contextual and the epistemological obstacles that Jews are forced to face. The divide between Israeli and diaspora Jews, between collective struggles and individualistic liberty is present and real. But learning to reconcile these different dreams into a reality of common cooperation for Jews, indeed all peoples, is beyond the philosophical imperative it is a call to action. While Jews are commanded to show compassion to all human beings, ahavat habriyot, there is also a unique mitzvah to love our fellow Jews, ahavat Yisrael, and to take responsibility for them, arvut. This principle is concerned primarily with helping others to actualize mitzvot, 
as we learn in the Talmud, but also with preventing Averot, wrongs. Here's what it says in the Tractate of Shavuot. Not to, not to be mistaken with the holiday of Shavuot, but thought of as a Shavuot, as an oath. It's the Tractate of Oaths, not of weeks. Regarding all sins in the Torah, a person is punished for what they did. And here, regarding an oath taken in vain, they are punished for what they did and for what the whole world did. And regarding all the sins in the Torah, this is not so. But surely it is written, and they shall fall each upon their brother, each person because of the sin of their fellow. This teaches that all of Israel are responsible one for the other. That is where they could have objected, but they failed to do so. So this could be read as theological, that God punishes us collectively. But the other way to read it simply is that on a political, on a practical level, the Jewish people globally are interconnected. If one Jew does something really stupid and evil, and it makes the cover of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and whatever the case is, anti-Semitism rises, right? All Jews are punished, right? If a Jew does something virtuous, Jews around the world may um, be perceived better. So it is not just a theological statement. It is also kind of a practical statement on how minorities are perceived and how our fate is intertwined. Further, the Jewish people are held accountable for collective wrongs. Here's what it says in the tractate of Shabbat. Whoever can prevent their household from sinning, but does not, is seized for the wrongs of their household. If he can prevent his towns, their townspeople, he, they are seized for the sins of the townspeople. If they can prevent the whole world, they are seized for the sins of the whole world, right? We are ultimately held accountable, each of us for our home, for our community, for our world. We can't simply say, ah, I disagree with this policy of Israel. I disagree with this policy of my federation. I disagree with this policy of my synagogue. I disagree with um, you know, my home's practice. If we disagree, we need to get active. We need to push back. We need to be a part of the solution, not sitting on the sidelines. If we disagree, we're complicit as Jews. And so we have to roll up our sleeves where we can and leverage our voices. Friends, not only do we need to help one another, we need to learn from one another, foster relationships, and act in solidarity when the times call for it. All Jews are needed in the spiritual enterprise of learning Torah, whether in the study halls or out in the streets. Rav Yehuda Halevi explained that all Jews are like instruments. To make a symphony, you can't only have a piccolo, a kazoo, and some violas. You need timpani and trumpets, oboes and xylophones, tubas and pianos. You need heart and soul. Rav Yoel Circus taught that the verse, V'tein chalkenu b'toratecha, give us our share in your Torah, means that every individual has a specific and special portion that only he or she can reveal. Each individual is crucial to the collective. Each instrument and voice is crucial to the symphony. The late Rav Aaron Lichtenstein argued that now that Jews have returned to the land of Israel and achieved sovereignty, our responsibility towards Arvut has increased. This raises interesting questions about our era, perhaps other factors of modernity and post-modernity the decreasing proximity we have to people on the other side of the world have raised the stakes of our responsibility as well. To continue growing spiritually, we have to journey beyond the familial. 
familiar. Our first steps are to create pluralistic communities where any and all Jews can learn from one another while honoring the diverse values inherent in our community and to hold our denominational communities responsible. If you're in an Orthodox shul and they're bashing liberal Jews, you gotta say something. If you're in a conservative synagogue and they pretend that the conservative movement is the answer to all their problems, you gotta say something. If you're in a reform synagogue and they're bashing Haredi Jews, you gotta say something. It's very easy to say, to point fingers at the other Jews or say my denomination, my camp is the best one and the rest, the rest are all broken. We need to say something. Pluralism doesn't only exist in our pluralistic space, but it has to carry over into our denominational space where we, where we make sure if our synagogues are only inviting people to speak from our denomination, we're failing. We're failing, right? We need to actually learn from each other and build that respect um, in a pervasive manner. The second step is to build our community and to work to repair the world together beyond the learning. Further, we are to cultivate love for one another and stand up for one another when we're attacked. Even if we do not agree with each other on virtually anything, the shared fate and destiny of the Jewish people rests on the sacred integrity and wisdom that we have cultivated for millennia. We have been chosen for a unique and crucial mission in the world, not merely to survive, but to thrive in fulfilling our global mission to make the world more just and holy. Never again should Haman boo, be equipped to argue that we are vulnerable to outside threats due to our internal arrogant pettiness, the narcissism of, of small differences. We may oscillate between embracing diversity and striving for unity, but we must be absolutely unequivocal about our commitment to a culture of respect, tolerance, and co collaboration. There is no freedom without responsibility. We are not free simply because we are free from, but also because we are free to. When we commit, when we take responsibility, we actualize our freedom. Not only is our freedom found in our responsibility, but so is our uniqueness. The 20th century French philosopher and Talmudist, Emmanuel Levinas, writes powerfully in his book, Beyond the Verse. The trauma I experienced as a slave in the land of Egypt constitutes my humanity itself. This immediately brings me closer to all the problems of the damned on the earth, of all those who are persecuted, as if in my suffering as a slave, I prayed in a prayer that was not yet oration, and as if this love of the stranger were already the reply given to me through my heart of flesh. My very uniqueness lies in the responsibility for the other. I could never pass it off to another person, just like I could never have anyone take my place in death. Obedience to the Most High means precisely this impossibility of shying away. Through it, myself is unique. To be free is to do only what no one else can do in my place. To obey the Most High is to be free. Let me repeat that second to last line because I think it's the crux of it. To be free is to do only what no one else can do in my place, right? Each of us is unique and, and that we actualize our responsibility through our freedom and we actualize our freedom of responsibility through our uniqueness by doing what only we can do. Even once we determine our unique responsibility, we may still have little clarity about how to act next. As the late Rabbi Walter Wurzberger taught, each of us has our own holy work that we must do. 
since there is plurality within the complexity of Jewish values. Here's what he writes in his great book, Ethics of Responsibility. The pluralism of Jewish ethics manifests itself in the readiness to operate with a number of independent ethical norms and principles, such as concern for love, justice, truth, and peace. Since they frequently give rise to conflicting obligations, it becomes necessary to rely upon intuitive judgments to resolve the conflict. There is, however, another dimension to the pluralism of Jewish ethics. It is multi-tiered and comprises many strands. It contains not only objective components, such as duties and obligations, but also numerous values and ideals, possessing only subjective validity. Moreover, the pluralistic thrust of Jewish ethics makes it possible to recognize the legitimacy of many alternative alternate ethical values and ideals. So friends, what Wurzberger is pushing us to think about is not only the pluralism that's person-based. Ah, I embrace you as a Christian, as a Muslim, as an atheist. I embrace you as an Orthodox Jew, a reform one, a conservative one, but also the pluralism that's ideas-based, that values are complicated. And the dialectical tension between many values is even more complicated. And we have to hold uh, a respect for the plurality of values that are involved in any difficult moral dilemma. And so when we determine how we must take responsibility, learning the ability of response, right? The ability of response, meaning response ability, we will see that we are taking achrayut, responsibility. But in taking responsibility for the other, we also bring wholeness to the self. Rav Yitz said in this way, tzedakah means taking responsibility for life. One shares one's own possessions in order to take responsibility for the needs of others because life is indivisible. My life cannot be whole while others' lives are not. For Rav Yitz, it is precisely due to God's in invisibility in our time that our responsibility has increased so greatly, right? If God is visible, right? We can expect God to intervene. My responsibility is less. But God's invisibility means we cannot rely on God to intervene, and our responsibility has increased. In his own words, he writes, God was now limiting the visible divinity in history, less manifest, but more present, in order to summon human beings to a higher level of responsibility in realizing the goals of the covenant. Of course, this is his post-Shoah, post-Holocaust theology around us not turning to God to prevent mass atrocities and the like, but having to increase our own agency and responsibility to address these crises. It is beneficial to reflect every hour of the day on how we are receiving and emanating spiritual energies. To be sure, we have a responsibility to battle the darkness within us and around us. God forbid we dismiss such holy work, but it can't weigh us down spatially, temporally, or existentially. Our efforts to zoom out and remain positively charged, actualizing our unique life missions and emanating holy light must be our daily obsession for bringing all people together in solidarity and peace. As humans often full of guilt or shame, it is all too easy to deny injustices right before our eyes. The Caduceus Levi taught that Cain, Cain, was not only a murderer of his brother, but also a heretic for his reply, am I my brother's keeper? Denying his responsibility to stand for justice was akin to rejecting the creator. Abandoning moral agency is abandoning everything. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, few are guilty 
but all are responsible. Kant spoke about universal human duties. Hume spoke about responsibility based upon emotion. The Torah adds a third important dimension, memory. Do not oppress a stranger because you were slaves in Egypt. We are responsible to ourselves, to God, to our family, to our community, to humanity, and to all of life. It can only be sustainable and not completely overwhelming if we hold it all together. Friends, may we be blessed with gavura, with strength, and with a sense of chesed, gentle love and kindness, throughout our journey towards maximizing our, our roots. Here's the last thing I want to say before we open up the conversation, which is, why is this part of kindness? Why is this a part of kindness, right? Because I think on the meta level, or perhaps the opposite, on the foundational level, that for us to live with kindness, what that has to emerge from a deep sense of responsibility, right? We are kind, not because we're charitable, right? I, as if I deserve everything in the world, I'm entitled to everything I want, right? Everything is my right for what I want, right? Um, and, and thus, if I do something kind, I'm just being a really great sadiq. I'm being really awesome. But also, but instead, um, that my foundation is not entitlement um, but, and, and my own rights. My foundation is my responsibility, right? My obligation. That's why Judaism is not, is not um, based in a language of human rights. Judaism is not opposed to human rights, but rights are passive. It's what I claim. Judaism is founded in a language and discourse of obligations rather than a language of rights. Of course, with an obligation is a concomitant right. If I'm obligated to pay a worker on time, that means the worker you know, has the right to their pay. But the language is based in obligation and in responsibility. And so our kindness emerges not as a charity, but based on our fundamental Jewish orientation towards responsibility. Okay, friends, we're going to remove our slides here and we're going to, so we can see each other in a gallery mode. And I'd love to hear from you. Hi, Lauren Blatt. Hi. Um, it just, it's sort of repeating what you said, but I'll never forget it. Um, in a pre Rosh Hashanah drush um, in Yerushalayim, Rav Riskin said, never forget achrayut, responsibility is to the ach, our brother, but also to the acher. And, and, and like it blew my mind, you know, I was like repeating that to everybody before Rosh Hashanah. But I think that's like the bottom line, our responsibilities to ourselves, to our brothers, to our, our the Jewish people, but to the acher, to the other. So I just want to reemphasize that. Just to make you. sure everybody understood what Lauren said. Thank you for that. So the, just to get the Hebrew down, I'm going to put it in the chat because it's important. Ach, Ach rayut means responsibility. Ach means your sibling. Acher means the other, which is thought of to be the, your non-sibling. So responsibility, as Lauren shares in the name of Rabbi Riskin, is um, um, achrayut has within it both our ach, our family, as well as acher, the one who is foreign to us rather than familiar to us. Lauren, thank you for that. those, um, those words of wisdom. And I think that the other thing I want to say there is that we often talk about our universalism and particularism as at odds. Oh, do I help humanity or help the Jews? Am I foreign foremost American or Jewish? 
right? Do I, right, um, you know, who am I primarily? And this is a false dichotomy, a false binary. I think just like Ach and Achera are built into Achrayut, our sense of Jewish identity is rooted in the universalism, right? Our particularism and our universalism are deeply interconnected. Okay, yes, Aglaya, hi. Okay, sorry if I'm a little shaky because um, this is a little bit of a sensitive topic, but anyway, um, and I actually brought my actual topic today. So anyway, um, the reason why was because this came up in my old Torah study though, and just long story short though, but it's talking about, um, you know, like, like basically the nations shall see your glory. This is Isaiah 62, but you shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the palm of your God. Now, I'm kind of wondering about that because, um, you know, if you're doing things right, then someone had said, why does the diadem in someone's hand? But you are a gift when you are doing things. You are a gift to other people is how I always interpreted that. So if you are, you know, stepping up to your responsibilities to the community, do you become a gift to others? And is that what the arrangement is? Mm-hmm. So, Aglaya, so I caught your great question, but I didn't catch how this was sensitive. Oh, uh, did I say? Oh, I didn't say. Um, it's basically. Oh, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, yeah, it's okay. It's just basically, it's a sensitive topic for me, though, because uh, dealing with communities, um, I have a tendency to not fit in. So anyway. Oh, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yes. And there are many of us who naturally fit in in spaces that we enter. Mm-hmm. Um for various reasons. And there are many of us who always feel a little bit outside, either because of the communities we have access to or because of our, um, or because of, you know, everything we bring with us in, 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 in our fullness. And so um, I, I, am very, I am very sensitive to that. And I think you're, you're, um, you state very powerfully, Aglia, around this notion of, of gift, that we are to be a gift. We are to be a gift to society and to the world and um, the interesting thing about a gift is that it's not a debt. When you give a gift, you're not just um, doing something you have to, that you, know, you were asked to do transactionally. You're really doing something above and beyond what's unexpected. And that's when we're being proactive in kindness. We're, nobody chased us down and, and demanded we do this. We went out ourselves ourselves to bring a gift. I mean, what a great thing. And, and, and I know many of you already live like this, and I'm certainly trying, although it's very hard, but, but to proactively think each day, what, how can I bring gifts into the world, right? How can I bring my gifts to others? Um, who are the people who need my gifts? And what do I have to offer most? And, you know, and how, where can I do it comfortably? Maybe where where I might need to be a little bit uncomfortable to do so? And to fulfill that. And I really believe that that's our that's 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 really at the heart of uh, of our sacred mission. So thank you so much for that. Okay. Who wants to jump in here? Hi, Steve. Oh, good, good, good. Thank you for this great presentation. Um, I have two questions that I want to take up all the time. Number one, how do the poor and needy manifest kindness and compassion? What can they give? And I think I I, I know the answer. One is honesty. You can be honest. Number two, earlier in your presentation today, I think you said, we have been chosen to survive, but not only survive, prosper and flourish. How do you reconcile that with the idea of pluralism? We have been chosen as opposed to everybody has been chosen. 
Wow. Well, only only, only uh, hardballs there, Steve. I love it. I love it. So um, and so I, I'll, I'll take a stab at an answer. And I, I certainly, as always, welcome other voices into the room as well. Thank you, Steve. So first on this question of the poor and what can they give? Um, and I love your first your first stab at an answer of honesty, because you're right. I think that um, that those of us who have privilege and we all have privilege, various kinds, um, uh, are able to um, give enormous amounts. Maybe maybe because of our privilege, we can give time. Maybe we're not working a full time job right now, or maybe we um, have have money, um, or maybe we're positioned in certain relationships or positions of influence. Um, there's so much. Uh, there are so many types of privilege. But for those who don't have some kinds of privilege, they may have other kinds of privilege or power. And certainly, being in poverty does um, does limit one uh, a few types of giving. Um, but before I say what they can give, I want to say that the flip side is giving requires receivers. It is also a mitzvah to learn how to receive. Right. One should not only know how to give love, but learn how to receive love. One should not only know how to give charity um, well, but how to receive charity well, right? One should not only know how to, how, to, how to heal and cure, but learn how to heal the oneself, right? That in fact, learning how to receive is also a mitzvah and crucial, not only um, for the giver, but, but for our society at large. And that's something we can all learn. Maybe we have an identity of being a receiver. Maybe we have an identity of being a giver, but we need to learn both. Um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and someone in poverty can be our teacher in this regard on how they receive, um, you know, graciously and, and, and with gratitude and the like. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second, as we've talked about in a few other sections, is the power of speech to raise up others, the power of sharing. I mean, let, let, let me share a story which I've, shared in the past, but I want to just share again, if you've never heard me say it. it it's told by Primo Levi. Pre, when Primo Levi talks about the scariest time in Auschwitz being this brief period after the Nazis left and before the Soviets arrived. And he said a, a, a starving man found a sack of potatoes. And what any starving person would do is hide themselves away and eat, eat the food. But instead, this starving poor man near death, ran to the, cent cent the center of, of, of the square and started passing out these potatoes. And he said in that moment, in that moment, he, for the first time in years, felt like a human being, which is to say that giving is constitutive of our humanity. It is giving, even when we're poor, that fundamentally makes us human, that capacity. That's why we use the lechem oni, the bread of the poor at, at Pesach, Right, this notion of celebrating our freedom through our affliction and through our poverty. Okay, so there's so much more to say there, and I, and I hope others will weigh in on this on this really powerful point that Steve's bringing up. Just to go to Steve's second point, this question of surviving and thriving, and how do we think of pluralism in this regard? Um, and the second part of that is what what about this idea of kind of a chosen people? So, firstly, on the surviving and thriving, I think that um, you can tell very quickly which agencies or fundraisers or the like are fundamentally rooted in a fear-based discourse. You need to give to us right now because the Jewish people are about to die. We're about to get bombed and assimilate and everyone, everyone's walking away. If you don't give now, like, like if you don't give now, there's no future, right? And, um, and you can also just get a sense very quickly of fear-based um, 
tactics. Now, that's not to say that Jews shouldn't be afraid, right? Um, there's, 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 there's plenty to be concerned about, right? But it's very different to constantly have a survivalistic fear-based rhetoric as opposed to one that is talking about the purpose of the Jewish people, one that leverages our power and privilege to, yes, ensure our survival, but also ask questions of purpose of what we're trying to do here in the world. And in that spirit of pluralism there, um, we understand that there's going to be many different purposes that people are articulating. You know, some Orthodox person is going to say, if you just do Torah and mitzvot, the Jews will be safe, right? Someone's going to say, if you only send more for Iron Dome, the, if, for the Iron Dome defense, the Jews are going to be safe. Someone else is going to say, like, only if you, you know, give money to campuses and strengthen Jewish life on campuses, or if you give to camp, everyone's got their argument that this is the one thing that saves us, right? And so um, there is, I, I, and I think we have to build a pluralism into our discourse to say that, no, 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 we need a lot of things in our community. We should push back when someone says, this is the one thing we need to, to kind of make it. Um, to the question of chosenness, um, I, think, I think that um, um, on, this, on this issue of, of thriving, I, I dream of a world where, um, where everyone feels chosen, going back to Levinas and uniqueness, rather than, than push off chosenness, like, oh, this sounds problematic. Are we, are we are saying that we're better than other people? Of course, I don't think we should argue for a theology of chosenness implies that Jews are better than other people. But what I do want to argue for is that everyone feel chosen. You know how big of a miracle that is that we're alive? That like when the, when the various sperms were swimming around and the sperm got into the egg and there's fertilization and whatever, whatever happens in there happened, like it was that sperm that made it. And somehow that like there was fertility and somehow that there was a birth and then we, that we're alive and then and we're still alive. I mean, it's like, it's like an incredible miracle that we're here right now. Incredible miracle, right? And so we've been chosen every morning we wake up, we've been chosen for life. And so too, I really believe in my theological pluralism that the Muslims have been chosen for a unique mission. The Christians have been chosen for a unique mission. The Hindus, the Buddhists, and the atheists, everyone's been chosen. Right? And the Jews, right? Whether you're a Jewish Hindu or a Jewish atheist or a Jew, because nobody wants to just be a Jew anymore. You got to be a Jewish something, right? <laughs> a Jewish communist, a Jewish capitalist, whatever you want to be, you know? And so um, that, that we've all been chosen for something. And I think our task is to continue to honor those different paths that people are walking on. Steve, thank you. Thank you for getting us started on that. Hi, Toby. Morning, everybody. Hi, I missed morning. everybody on the weeks that we weren't meeting because I look forward to this group so much. But I want to respond just briefly to Steve's question about what can the poor give or under or pick the sick or, you know, pick a group, any group, underprivileged or underrepresented, whatever you want to call it. Um, each one of those people has a unique talent or, or, and I don't care how rich or poor or sick or, you know, whatever, they are, they have a very unique ability that nobody else has. I've visited the, the homeless shelter here in town many, many, many times. I've had a lot of clients who started out there or who ended up there. Um, and so I, I visited there and it's, it's amazing the community that arises there. I mean, there's some bad things and, and I know we've heard about you know, people ripping each other off and saying you gotta hide your stuff and all this. But there's, there's another side to that. And there's, a, there's a, a sense of community and protection of the young and um, protection of the sick there that I wish existed other places that people physically hold on to people to protect them. 
you know, and it's not everybody, but everybody there has a unique gift that they choose to share. And, and I think it, it, it regardless all over the world, it, it's not a function of how much money you have or how much, how, you know, what schools you've been to or whatever, but it's, it's, it's that human characteristic of wanting to, to protect and to help. Beautiful, beautiful, Toby. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to share in that spirit a few words by Diane Brand, um, who wrote a poem called Nothing of Egypt, and she's from Trinidad and Tobago. I just put it here in the chat if you can see that. She writes, revolutions do not happen outside of you. They happen in the vein. They change you and, they, and you change yourself. You wake up in the morning changing. You say, this is the human being I want to be. You're making yourself for the future and you do not even know the extent of it when you begin, but you have a hint to taste in your throat of the warm elixir of the, of the possible. Thank you. So Vicki, hi Vicki. Whoops, I love there the topic. I love what you had to say. Um, I love the mix of sources that you use, both uh, you know, rabbinic and scholarly, et cetera. So it really um, gave us a broader view of, of this. I just wanted to comment on two things. Um, one, um, uh, this notion that Steve raised about, you know, and we've others have talked about uh, as to where to give. And I loved the quote that Lauren gave about uh, giving to the Jews and giving to others. And uh, I mean, I've wrestled with this for a very long time. And then we're talking giving time and giving money um, as to whether I have a greater responsibility to the Jewish community or whether I have a, a larger responsibility to the larger community. Um, and for me, it's been really an evolution. I would say two things. First of all, by getting involved in the Jewish community, I think that for was really signal in my development in terms of giving and in terms of understanding what community means, because I developed a very deep connection and deep sense of my identity um, as an adult. And within that is the sense of responsibility and obligation that you're talking about. And I would say that we all change every day and we're never done and we keep growing. So I hope to keep growing that way. Um, on the other hand, um, from that grew my sense of, you know, hey, there's lots of other people out there and we need to do things for others as well. Uh, that always, we, we've talked in my house about if you only had $1 to give, where do you give it? Um, that's sort of a very baseline way of looking at things. Um, but I think that that's led me to, to realize that you have to think strategically and thoughtfully about how you navigate this world and what might be the right choices for me or for my husband and I may not necessarily be the right choices for anybody else that's on this call or anybody else who's thinking about it. I think the important thing that comes out of what you're saying is to give mm -hmm. and also to give whether it's time or whether it's money or both. Um, and to realize that you have responsibilities to other people. I love it, Vicki, thank you. And you know, I, just, to, just before we go to Gary, so I think one of the things we forget, and, and this is gonna sound silly the way I state it, is that Jews are human beings. We have this like binaries of there's humanity over here and Jews <laughs> over here. And if I help Jews, I'm not helping humanity, right? But wait a minute, Jews are human beings. Like helping Jews is also helping human beings. Right. And, and we've we've almost so often um, internalized an anti-Semitic trope. And that one of the most, the, the, the uh, one of the oldest forms of anti-Semitism is the argument that Jews only care about Jews, right? And so Jews have to bend over backwards and show, no, I don't really only care about Jews. I really, in a way that is not normal. Like if a black woman helps a black woman, she doesn't have to explain herself. 
If a gay person helps a gay person, they'll explain themselves. Like a Muslim helps a Muslim. Like we shouldn't be embarrassed if we help someone in our affinity group or if someone like we feel connected to as if we've like, you know, we're anti-human by being particularistic or having a connection with a certain type of person. And so, um, so I appreciate what Vicky's saying. We're going to come to different conclusions on, on, on where to give. And yet, um, and yet um, uh, uh, the most important thing is to give. One more thing about that anti-Semitic trope is that comes up in the book of Jonah quite a bit. The anti-Semitic, um, they, um, they hate Jonah um, because Jonah is asked to go protest you know, Nineveh and he doesn't want to do it. And their reason is that he doesn't want to save this, this Jewish city. Um, that Jews only care about Jews. And so they find all these stories to kind of demonstrate such things like this. And so I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I had a call earlier this week, someone's debating, you know, who do I give my kidney to? There's a person in my community who's Jewish, but then there's a chain I can be a part of, you know, that's involved with Gentiles and what do I do? And he's really going back and forth about who he is and where his obligations lie. And it's like, look, be gentle with yourself. You want to donate a kidney, like that's the most important thing. Right. This, the second most important thing is who the recipient's going to be. Right. But just, you know, just being a part of giving itself is, is great. So thanks, Vicky. Thanks so much. Hi, Gary. Good morning. <laughs> Sorry, it's a rainy day in Denver. Yes. <laughs> We're in Denver, too. Yeah. Uh, I have to agree with, uh, with Vicky uh, uh, about going through this whole process of who do you give to? And because uh, we've, we've struggled with it uh, as well, and we have grown over the years on, on, our, on our giving. Uh, but the thing that, that I always question is in the postmodern world where many people, Jews in particular, have gone more uh, liberal and are not uh, reminded of Jewish obligations. Uh, that, so, so where do you you know, we don't go to shul, or we, you know, if you if you if you go to if, if you go to minion in the morning, you're gonna be reminded. If you go to Shabbat, if you wear sitzis, if you wear a kippah, if you do all these things, <clears throat> excuse me, you're reminded of our obligations. But as we move, uh, at least in this country, to to a more liberal uh, setting, how do we get how do we get people to be constantly reminded? Other than you know, obviously we're here, so we listen to listen to you and. And, and we and other organizations that constantly remind you, but how how do you get people uh, back or educated into uh, Judaism? Is as they used to say, is more than leave you right. You know, uh, to me that that's an enigma. Yes. Yeah, Gary. Thank you so much for flagging. If 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 well over ninety percent of Orthodox philanthropy, Sadaka stays within the Jewish community and specifically within the Orthodox community. Right. And well over 90% of non-Orthodox philanthropy or tzedakah goes out of the Jewish community, right? What does that mean for the Jewish future? And we could feel different challenges. Orthodox Jews need to be challenged more universalistically, right? To think beyond the parochial. And liberal Jews need to think more particularistically, to think beyond just that, uh, that, that universal spirit. Otherwise, what's going to be the future of Judaism? Um, and the survival, I think, I, so I think that part is, 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 is very important for us to feel different challenges. And then this point about young Jews who basically were taught that Judaism is just tikkun olam. And so why should I, that's not going to hold on to a Jewish identity. If all it means is go, go like repair the world, then like, I'm just going to go join, you know, a secular, you know, volunteer movement 
right? Um, if there's no, if there's, if Judaism has nothing to add other than a slogan, right? And so um, I think we have to push back against that. That part of our work at Valley Beit Midrash is to say, you want to do social action work. That's amazing, but let's root it in Torah. Let's root it in Jewish learning. Let's root it in this wisdom and its values in a way that's going to sustain an identity and a commitment far beyond um, just, you know, you know, bumper stickers and slogans. And so I think that um, we have to feel really challenged about that. And I think we have to challenge our liberal synagogues that the answer to engaging young Jews is not just to preach to the choir, just tell them, oh, you're liberal. And so guess what? Our Judaism is liberal also. And they've learned nothing. They haven't been challenged at all, right? Actually, we have to challenge them to think differently and to see the bigger tensions and the bigger questions involved. So um, we've, we've, many have learned that, that the answer is make Judaism fun. If Judaism fun, we give them candy and we give them, you know, uh, just a good time. They're gonna love it. They're gonna love it. No, no. Judaism, the fun of Judaism cannot compete with the fun of a roller coaster or the fun of an iPad or the fun of, you know, going out with your friends to do whatever friends do these days. Uh, you know, folkies like me have no idea what kids do. <laughs> but um, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, we on the fun business we can't compete. Right. We can compete in the meaning business. We can compete in the service business. We can compete in the in the realm of depth, right? In in a real way. And so I think we have to move away from fun and preaching to the choir and slogans and actually challenge and show how rich this is in a way that they're not used to. So um, and I don't see a lot of groups doing that, to be honest. I don't see a lot of groups doing that. Um, a lot of socializing, a lot of fun, and a lot of kind of, oh, that you know, Judaism already, you know, believes what you believe. So so thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's hear from anyone we haven't heard from yet, Eric or Francine or Alex or Eddie or Yehuda, before we circle back to anyone. Hi, Rabbi. Uh, thank you so much for discuss on this topic. Um, you know, you, you talked about great examples of like with the Orthodox and the liberal communities. And I've challenged you in the past about some kind of school of thought or model that has advocated kindness to the community and caring to the community that is a some kind of balance of the, the equal of not just the you know the jewish community itself whether you see that as your temple your city your federation whatever the organization is and also the wider you know society that is not just religiously affiliated where have you seen to be kind of um either scholars that are advocating the most like a middle ground approach to to that or where have you seen um organizations that have been advocating a, like a model of that sort to to jews in the in you know to jews in the united states <laughs> i love it eric thank you um i think i'll i'll get in trouble if i speak about specific agencies sure. I, i've got about a sure. dozen in my mind as you were speaking that i wanted to talk about and their relationship to this issue and for example, um, I do not think we can build the Jewish identity of the youth on the backs of the vulnerable. That is to say, pretend we care about tikkun olam or social justice in a way that doesn't actually help anyone, but just tries to foster identity of young Jews, right? I think if we're serious about talking about that, the first thing should be helping and making a difference. And second should be the identity. And say, I see a lot of groups that talk about helping, building bridges, making a difference. But I think we have to look at, at that discourse and what's happening there and say, oh, like, is there a measurable impact 
that is being had there? Or is this really just about affirming kind of an identity within our own community that we care about these things? And that's really crucial that we keep that pressure on. We are in polarized times on every front, but this front in particular, this front in particular around um, the parochial and the universal um, and this sense of kind of where our community stands, um, you know, is something we should really look very closely at. And I really want to reject both sides. Um, you know, as you pointed to there, Eric, this, this, this um, exclusivistic isolationist approach, right? That, that says, um, you know, only the Jews will protect the Jews, no one else will, right? Um, and, you know, um, uh, and it's going to happen again. We should, you know, be in full of fear. And this other side, you know, that really abandons, um, really abandons and even shames the Jewish community. The side that is just um, brutal to Israel, brutal to Israel, not holding Jews to a whole different standard um, than the rest of the world as it emerges with, um, you know, the difficulty of nation state building, especially a nation that's only 70 years old, uh, a state that is very flawed and has many challenges, um, but like every nation. Um, and, and brutal to the Jewish establishments that are trying to hold all this, this together. Um, that it's true that synagogues are dying in America rapidly in a way that doesn't make the headlines because they're, they're, they're masking over. Denominations are trying to show all these successes that aren't actually there. Um, the synagogues are dying fast, you know, fast and quick. And, um, um, uh, and yes, it's true that the product is, is outdated, not just the marketing um, in terms of what's being offered, but it's also true that some of the products are really good, right? And the people just, uh, the people aren't, aren't biting. And so there's not a lot of scholarship there, um, Eric, around how to build that middle ground, um, you know, in, in that regard. And if you look at the agencies, I mean, Valley Beit Midrash is unique in that we're a Torah learning center and a social action center, but almost every agency you can put to one box or the other, right? Um, you know, this is a, a Jewish human rights camp, you know, campaign or organization, or this is a Jewish communal organization. There are some um, that try to bridge that. And what you'll normally find in that bridge, and this is not a critique, is that it's 80 to 90% as kind of a public, you know, a public agency um, about Jewish interests, um, so to speak, and about 10 to 20% kind of outward facing, um, demonstrating that that allyship is actually kind of transactional and of self-interest rather than one that's actually, um, you know, going beyond that, that, that parochial realm. And so, um, um, yeah, so that's kind of a short answer to a very full, a very full question. So friends, I don't think we have any, um, any other breaks in our sessions coming up in the coming, um, in the coming weeks, at least I hope not. And I want to share that next week, our topic is Rodev Shalom, the pursuit of peace, the pursuit of peace, Rodev Shalom. So I hope that you'll join us for that. And I wish us luck in our Denver launch today and tonight. And I look forward to seeing you all uh, later this week or next week. Have a great day. God bless. Be well.